this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com on the 1st of July 1960, a United States RB-47 reconnaissance plane was shot down by the Soviet Air Force off the Arctic coast of the Soviet Union. Four of the six crew members died. The shootdown occurred exactly two months after the far better known U-2 shootdown involving Gary Powers. I speak with John Mollison, an aviation artist, writer and award-winning filmmaker. Do check out his website at johnmollison.com. John interviewed Captain Bruce Olmsted, who was the co-pilot of the RB-47. As a result of his involvement in the incident, Olmsted received the Prisoner of War Medal in 1996 and the Silver Star Medal in 2004, as well as the Distinguished Flying Cross. His Silver Star citation reads, By his gallantry and devotion to duty, Colonel Olmsted has reflected great credit upon himself and the United States Air Force. Bruce Olmsted died in October 2016. I'm delighted to welcome John Mollison to our Cold War conversation. But you have to realize that we were flying RB-47 missions over Russia. These were in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, this was back in the day when, when Russia I mean, really didn't have the technology that, to intercept a high-flying RB-47. Uh, RB-47s were flying in the daylight, so and and they were able to to outclimb and outrun a MiG-15. And this type of dog and cat Cold War recon trying to catch you was happening way before July 1st, 1960, when Bruce Olmsted was shot down over the Barents Sea over international waters. The whole 50s and early 60s, you know, up until you know. Obviously, Gary Powers, which I think he was shot down May 1, 1960. That whole period of time, chock full of what are called SIGINS, missions, signals, intelligence. Now, being a nerd here, uh, the listener needs to understand all these SIGINT, ELINT, COMINT, uh, you know, nomenclature that the military likes to create. If you look at SIGINT as an umbrella, Underneath, you'll find the other ints, like comment, elint. Uh, comment is signals intelligence that is uh, usually has voice attached to it. Elint is communications intelligence that is largely data. So you think about voice would be maybe radio or some other kind of transmissions. And uh, elint is radar or other kinds of you know data moving back and forth. So. SIGINT missions incorporated a number of uh, a number of aspects to try to basically collect intelligence around the enemy, and up until uh, you know May, we were doing it with relative impunity. Of course, by May of 1960, we weren't flying too many RB-47 missions anywhere near Russia. We were using U-2s. And the RB-47 was flown around the periphery. You know, we all know about Gary Powers being shot down in May of 1960 and, and how that happened. And 
We cover Gary Powers and the 1960 U2 incident in our episode number 23. There'll be a link in the episode information. By July of 1960, July 1st, when Olmsted was shot down, Russia was highly agitated, uh, and there's a whole story behind that. But And we'll get into that, I'm sure, in this, in this podcast. Why was this uh, information important to the U.S.? The obvious looking for information on defenses and reaction times are, are part of signals intelligence. But we understand, we want, we want to understand the big picture of what communications is about. And when in the Cold War, every bit of information is important. You want to know what their radar capacity is, uh, their, their response times, where their bases are. Oh, there were still items that we didn't know. And so you sometimes you're out there just sniffing, just figuring out what's going on. And electronic communications create all kinds of uh, all kinds of pathways and noise. And our job was to figure it out, find out when it's going, uh, or find out where they're coming from, and um, uh, figure out what it means. You've spoken about the RB-47. For those that aren't familiar with that aircraft, can you just describe it and it's uh, a brief history and its capabilities? First of all, you've got to think about the aircraft as probably one of the most beautiful airplanes you can ever look at. When I drew Bruce Olmsted's RB-47, I remember I was at the printer and uh, they, there's kind of a specialized process to printing these things. And the owner of the company was with me on the press check and he came out and he looked at it and he said, you know, that is so pretty. I just don't even believe it's real. And I'm saying, so you look at an RB 47, it's sleek. It's got this, you know, high, high mounted swept wing. Um, and it really was the father to the, to the B 52 B 52, of course, air, you know, airplane that's still flying today, but give you a little background, uh, the B 47 was a strategic bomber and it had a crew of three had a pilot co-pilot and navigator and that was quickly supplanted by the b-52 however the rb-47 was the reconnaissance version and that airplane i believe flew from uh the 50s into into the into 70s early 70s and it was a reconnaissance airplane now, if you look at an RB-47, you can always tell what they look like because there's, there's, you can tell it's an RB quickly because the nose is just slightly more blunt and it's kind of got, it, it isn't as pretty, but it's black. And there are all kinds of little black squares, uh, which kind of look like black, little black squares on, uh, on the fuselage and the nose. And those are the panels where there would be electronic, um, uh, listening gears, antennas, and receivers, and such. Here's the thing about the RB-47 that's that's fascinating to somebody who who's not familiar with it is that the bomb bay was filled with essentially a pod, <laughs> and and the pod was where these uh, people called ravens were, and their their job was to sit inside this pod with all their electronic listening measuring gear. And, uh, and do their thing while the co-pilot, pilot, and navigator were up in the nose. So when you look at a picture of an RB-47, you're really looking not at a crew of three, you're looking at a crew of five or six, maybe even seven. I'll 
I have to take issue with you about the most beautiful aircraft from somebody who works at the Avro Museum, where the Avro Vulcan was uh, produced from. Yeah, I I won't debate that. I think the Vulcan is is pretty pretty great, but I think you're um, you know you British have great stuff. You have the XKE, you have the Spitfire, you have all sorts of wonderful things. Please give the most beautiful aircraft to the RB forty seven, and we can talk about something else now. <laughs> <laughs> okay we'll we'll agree to differ on that one too. all right all right um however there's something about the rb47 and the engagement on july 1 that uh, you, you can, can get further into the aircraft and into the moment with uh, bruce olmstead and john mccone and willard palm and the three ravens that were in the belly of this airplane We've got to understand that at the altitude that this engagement happened between the MiG and the RB-47, RB-47 may be beautiful and sleek, but it's traveling very close to its absolute limits of being able to stay in the air. I work with a group called the Distinguished Flying Cross Society, and I know that the Brits have their version of the DFC, but uh, in the DFC Society, I called up um, a good friend of mine. His, his uh, name is Warren Eastman. He's not only a fighter pilot, but he's also an aeronautical engineer, PhD. And I asked him if he would help me get my head around the maneuvering envelope of, um, of the, an RB-47 at 30,000, 35,000 feet so your listeners could understand uh, what it was like to, be, to have an aerial dual uh, this 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 uh this high and went high altitude and there was something the critical mach number and the stall speed on a rb47 is very very tight and i asked i asked warren you know what what the mach number meant and if that's the that's the basically the maximum speed the airplane can go before it overspeeds the uh the uh, ability of the airframe to hold it together. The stall speed is the point where the wing loses lift. So it can be five knots or less between critical Mach and stall speed. So the true stall speed of an airplane, that increases with altitude. And as the airplane climbs, the air becomes less dense. The wings need more airflow. Uh, and as you climb, so your stall speed increases, and that's with any any airplane. But you have to understand, 35,000 feet, 30,000 feet, which is about the altitude that this RB-47 was flying at on July 1, uh, the MiG-19 comes up to it. That thing is, is it can't maneuver. I mean, it, you know, Warren figured, you know, geez, maybe you could get a 10-degree bank out of that thing. But they're sitting ducks, and the MiG-19 has a much more much more uh, robust uh, flight envelope than the RB-47 does. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War. Um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. 
So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. What altitude were they flying at? They're flying above 30,000. The actual altitude is is not known, but they let's just call it between let's just call it between thirty and thirty five thousand feet. They're flying to the Barents Sea. Now that is north of Murmansk. It's that sea that's between Russia and is it Nova Zelimia or something? The uh, big island. Yeah, it's it's north of Russia. I think cold, grey. <laughs> you know, heaving it's it's not a tropical destination. No, no, not by any means. Um and where are they flying from? What's their home base? Yeah, it was uh uh and maybe Ian, you can tell me here, Breeze Norton. Uh, that's it's kind of north and west of London, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's the main RAF transport base in the uh UK now. Uh, now uh, but in 1960, that is where you know some of the RB-47 flights were were launched. How long were these missions normally? Because that's quite a distance to fly and come back from. Oh, they they were very long. I mean, they could go from eight hours, fourteen hours, which sort of does beg the question as to uh, did they have a a loo on board these things or not? Yes, the Ravens had what's called a chemical toilet. Which just sounds horrible, <laughs> but I would imagine if you were a raven, um, you you got to know your buddies pretty well. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the Vulcan didn't have anything apart from uh, a pee tube, a bucket of some sort. So uh, nothing as luxurious as a chemical toilet. But uh, anyway, okay. well, you know, we Americans, we do things. You know, we got to do it right, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So ours yeah. had a you gotta, lid. You're to have your own comforts. <laughs> ours had a lid and chemicals. <laughs> Made it all better. Well, did the aircraft have any defensive armament? B-47s were first produced with uh, uh, a 50 caliber machine gun, kind of a little uh, stinger at the, at the tail of the airplane. And the RB-47 they had 20 millimeter cannon. And of course, they had all the listening and um, you know passive uh, passive radars on the airplane. But but the stinger and the tail was the only real defense that the RB forty seven had. Had the Soviets harassed previous missions, or was this out of the blue the the attack? There's a way to look at this act. On one hand, you can say the Russians are just being crazy. Why would they want to just shoot down this airplane over, again, international waters? But when I talked to Bruce Olmsted, this was in, in 2014, he he was pretty clear with me. He said, you know, and, and we did talk about the mission. I, you know, I, I got to know him as well as I, th- I think he could. 
he was pretty tired of of talking about how he was treated at Rubianca prison and what the actual shoot down was like. But Bruce had a, a, a really a great military career in, in intelligence. And obviously he's flying an RB 47. So he's, that's his mission is military intelligence. So, uh, he filled me in on some details of the times. Now you have to think about July 1, 1960, that's when Bruce Olmsted, Willard Palm, John McCone, and the Ravens are shot down. But you go back to May 1, 1960, that's the Gary Powers shootdown. And that was a U-2 over Russia. That was, that was not international waters. But between, I think it was June 25th, 1960, and this is an important detail, there were two uh, Americans who worked for the NSA that went to Mexico and then jumped over to Cuba and defected. Uh, Bruce Olmsted told me about this, he, and he, he said, what these two guys from the NSA had was a form of the PSYOP, which is the Single Integrated Operational Plan. Now, the PSYOP, it was essentially the 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 nuclear war strategy for the United States that um, encompassed ICBMs, submarine launch missiles, and, and uh, aerial delivered nuclear weapons. They call it the triad, the nuclear triad. And I talked to another distinguished flying cross society member, Ron Bartlett, who was the uh, uh, military attaché to the NSA. And I asked him, I said, so what is the PSYOP? And, you know, somebody defecting from the United States to Russia with the PSYOP, what would that look like? And he said, uh, and he took me through, he said, John, do you know how much information is in the PSYOP? And he described the targeting, the time of attack, and, and uh, all this stuff. He said, you know, wheelbarrows full of paper. But whatever happened in June of um, 1960, when these two guys defected, they probably had an aspect of the PSYOP or some information about new, our nuclear uh, attack plans. You put this all together, and six days later, uh, we're flying another sniffer flight again over international waters. The Russians are pretty, pretty irritated and they're primed to fight. And God only knows what's happened in the communications between the two defectors and the Russians and through Cuba. And so things are, 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 are heightened. Now taking you to the, the the flight cur or the flight path that's obviously coming in from the west and going along the northern coast of of uh, of Russia. And there's an anecdote here I have to tell you. But there you're flying this airplane single. It's not escorted and in 30, 35,000 feet, they're going to be intercepted. And when General Laughlin told me that when when they did their overflights, albeit in the day in nineteen fifties, they were always attempted to be intercepted by MiG-15s. And the MiG-15 really didn't have the performance capabilities to be scrambled and then get the RB-47. Now remember, this is 1950s technology. So 
1960, we have the MiG-19, which is the next evolution. It's really, a, you can call it a generation three is the first mock uh, supersonic fighter plane for, for Russia. Uh, it, it was it was following, it was shadowing um, the RB-47, Olmsted, Palm, and McCone's RB-47 at a distance of about three miles. And this MiG-19 is being directed every step of the way by communications with uh, essentially the base. So this MiG is tracking, tracking the RB-47. It's about three miles off. And uh, General Laughlin told me that the Russians knew that the, the tail gun on an RP-47 had about a 41-degree fire angle, and they would stay just out of that arc, <laughs> that area of lethality, so to speak. So if you can imagine, 1960, you got this, this top-of-the-line fighter. Um, it now can reach the RB-47, whereas before the MiG-15s really couldn't in time and it's about three miles out the rb-47 has all the electronic wizardry that we can put into the plane uh, another reason for having this thing over international waters i mean if it got shot down you don't want the russians to be taking your 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 cool kit you know what i mean so they were watching it from miles away and uh remembering how bruce talked about it he said they they knew the MiG was on scope, and um, the of course the Ravens are watching this, and he goes and then it just disappeared. And uh, moments later, minutes—I don't know how many minutes it was—wouldn't be too many minutes, but let's just say five minutes later, uh, Bruce looked out over the starboard wing, and there was this MiG nineteen forty feet away. It just kind of came right in, and it came right in so quickly and through such uh, through an angle that it was a total surprise. And Bruce remembered, uh, you know, the co-pilot's job on an RP-47 was you know, co-pilot to manage the, the fuel and the engine performance. Again, you've got an airplane that is in coffin corner, as Warren Eastman uh, told me about. This is this is a very narrow flight envelope. The guys in the cockpit are busy, and all of a sudden. The co-pilot now has to go into, well, I got to man the radar-operated guns, the 20-millimeter Stanger in the back. But the MiG was so close that the radar scope that would aid in targeting was uh, essentially um, you know, just a big blob on the screen. You couldn't really target it. And so if you can imagine looking out uh, the, oh, on your way and 40 feet away is the Russian and Bruce remembers seeing his face everything about him and he's just flying formation and then he peels off and goes away and then uh willard paul the pilot took the rb-47 in a very gentle obviously again because the airplanes had at, at the edge of its stall speed a very gentle turn to to port which later on they find out is right on path with a newly um newly developed naval base that the Russians were trying to keep secret. You add in all the tension that's been happening in the past four months. Somehow, some way, the MiG pilot, he comes in guns blazing. It is a pursuit curve and he lights up, lights him up. And he's got three 30 millimeter cannon. 
and Bruce starts firing back and uh, and it's game on and it's not a, a very long fight at all. Does the pilot try and reduce altitude to try and get some more maneuverability or does that first run-in with the MiG-19 basically bring the aircraft down? What happens next? The MiG-19 is coming in from the from the starboard, and I, I drew this. I, I cut a little pencil sketch, and uh, if if you can make this part of the part of the uh, podcast somehow, Bruce Olmstead saw this and he said, "Yeah, that's 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 what it looked like." So the MiG-19 has got a slight altitude advantage um, and is turning in fires, and his uh, the, this cannon starts stitching up the left of the port wing. And if you can imagine being looking at an RB-47, the cockpit is really just kind of a little bubble on the nose of the airplane. So, so Bruce, he's turned his seat to now essentially be the front-mounted tail gunner. And he's seeing this MiG-19 come in on a pursuit curve outside of the arc of the guns, uh, the defensive guns of the RB-47. And Bruce is firing back, but there's some sort of glitch, lost radar, or lost the ability to really fire um, defensively. And the MiG, he remembered, Bruce remembered seeing the nose of the MiG, you know, sparkle. And then the impacts on the wing. Now a 30 millimeter cannon is, that's a big, that's a, that's a, that's a big shell. It's not a bullet. It's an explosive shell. And so when it starts hitting the wing, you've already got an airplane at, in this narrow flight environment, uh, palm pushes the airplane, the nose down to get a little airspeed, but get away. But you're at that that critical flight envelope that you don't want to go too fast, then you'll get, <laughs> then you'll rip your wings off. But you can't really stay there. So they're doing whatever they can. The, the, the airmanship of this crew is just at the edge. And they so they try to dive down, they lose control of the airplane. And I believe it was a couple thousand feet they lost. And then they tried to get the, you know, uh, they were able to get control of the airplane again, but then took another brace of fire and it was game over for the RB-47. And so they, they ejected. Um, uh, McCone ejected, um, Bruce ejected, and uh, Palm ejected. And uh, the Ravens inside, you know, they did have ejection seats in there, but they weren't able to get out. And if you can imagine the spinning g-forces inside that listening pod it had to have been just chaotic um surely the ravens knew that a russian plane was out there and surely they could feel the hits um i don't i I don't know uh maybe they did eject um they certainly weren't found well one body was found um eugene posa and these are all um, all officers he was a he was a, a captain I think um, his his remains were found, and the Russians didn't return them. But Dean Phillips and Oscar Goforth, the other two Ravens, they didn't find their bodies. Was there communication between the Ravens and the cockpit? Uh, there was. I I was wasn't able to to get any of that from Bruce when I talked to him. 
he he just said it was it was chaotic and and you're you know in defense and everything is happening so quickly and he he, he didn't have any recollection. So they're parachuting down into the Barents Sea, which is as we've previously said, is very far from being a tropical sea. What happens when they land in the sea? Well, I know that the pilot, Willard Palm, they figured he was is killed in, or was dead when he went into the water. And um, the Russians did return, return his body August, September. And uh, McCone and Bruce, Bruce Olmstead, went into the water and they got into uh, their little dinghy boats that they had. So they had some sort of survival equipment and they were obviously able to stay alive in the cold cold waters but bruce olmstead was severely hurt he had some spine um, spine comp- uh, compression and hit, he had it hurt his back pretty badly and that happens sometimes in the ejection let alone hitting the stormy sea and uh, bruce was picked up by a soviet fishing trawler that was um that was sent out there. I think it was a motor launch for, from the fishing trawler, a little faster, little uh, little boat. And uh, Ian, I believe John McCone was uh, picked out picked up uh, later, shortly thereafter. And the two were the only survivors of the sheepdown. Uh, did you get anything from Bruce as to how they were treated by the Soviet trawler crew? I, I think pretty well. He 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 just said, you know. Picked up. He received medical attention, um, and you know he was fed and warmed up. <laughs> Obviously, very cool. At the at the whole time, Bruce was careful to tell me that he and uh, McCone weren't physically tortured or abused while they were at Lubyanka Prison. They 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 were not brutalized, and Bruce Olmsted received medical care for his injured back, but. Um, the death penalty was threatened, and that's a serious thing. And so you have to understand that Olmsted and McCone, they, they know that they're in a heightened environment. They're in a high-stress environment, you know, with Gary Powers and whatever else is going on in the world. However, while they were in, in captivity, both of them lost um, about 40 pounds apiece. So you can tell they weren't thriving, you know what I'm saying? And so it, the they're they've got some you know sleep deprivation. They're being interrogated, and uh, they've got sleep deprivation. They're being interrogated, and you know they're not getting the greatest uh, nutritive care. You know they're not getting good nutrition. Obviously, they're losing forty pounds, and these aren't twenty first century fat Americans. They're Air Force crew that are in shape. So we can only imagine they didn't have forty pounds to lose. You see what I'm saying? Were they subject to sleep deprivation? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's what they what that's probably standard operating procedure for for this kind of situation. Yeah, woken up, not given a whole lot of time to sleep, uh, removal of time, so to speak. No, no clocks in a cell with very little light closed. Bruce did tell me that he figured he was two doors down from Gary Gary Powers. And it should be known that 
Gary Powers was flying for the for the CIA, and McCone and Olmstead were flying for the Air Force. So, uh, and there's some kind of unique um, uh, unique ways that the Russians were treating him with that. So, because Olmstead and McCone were military, they were subject to uh, the Geneva Convention, whereas Gary Powers wasn't. So, uh, so the the trawler guys bring them ashore, and uh, they're transported what by train to Moscow. Yeah, it was a, a plane, trains, and automobiles. They were a variety of transportation, but they were taken right away to Lubyanka. They were taken to Moscow. John McCone, the navigator, was was in fairly good shape. Uh, Bruce Olmsted told me that he was in deep deep pain and he was hurting so uh, again not at the hand of the russians more as a consequence of ejection and slamming into the ocean but that has to be has to be uh, be emphasized i mean bruce emphasized it to me i guess the the only information they disclosed was name rank serial number and that was it right correct as the air force officers air force crew uh, they were that's all that the Geneva Convention really, really required, and so they stuck to their guns, so to speak. Uh, the Russians felt we were definitely within Russian airspace, and John McCone, being the navigator on that airplane, he he received special uh, attention because he was blamed for the the whole issue. You think about you're the navigator; you should be able to know where you're at. <laughs> and so John McCune got special attention essentially from the Russians. Now, again, the Russians knew we were over international waters, but you can imagine the sleep deprivation, the food deprivation, the fact that John McCone didn't break was extraordinary. And he, he stuck to his guns, the, uh, stuck to his, uh, stuck to his confidence that they uh, that he didn't make a navigational error and that's um, that's important until the soviets reveal that they're holding these two the americans think there's been some mechanical failure of some kind and they've come down in the ocean yeah yeah correct and we we didn't know the rb47 was shot down it just goes blank and that that's how uh, you that's how you have to realize what happened in those moments the dogfight this is something that happened very quickly and you know uh, so boom you're you lose contract contact and uh, we didn't know what happened and the next notice you have is near you know you're you have an rb47 shot down and we have two of your crew and the that's quite a shock for the United States. Once the Americans realize that the Soviets are holding them, what do they do? Do they try and enter into some form of negotiation with the Soviets? First of all, you know, President Eisenhower, you know, pledged uh, during the uh, after Gary Powers was shot down that we would not have no more overflights. So now we're conciliatory even though the airplane was over international waters. Well, I guess we don't know that at the moment, 
is that it could have overflown Soviet territory in error with a navigational error or bad weather or something like that. Yeah. The the Russian side of the of the of the game was that the RB forty seven was twelve miles from the coast. Our navigation was that we were outside the 50, 50 mile. So fifty miles is a lot different than twelve miles. And so you, the Russians say that of course we were flying inside their their borders, and of course we, we weren't. But it also should be brought up again that when Willard um, Willard Palm turned the airplane um, on a turn uh, shortly shortly before the attack, that we were headed for at the time what was a, an unknown top secret naval base. That may have been the provocation. I think it has to be established that the Russians were very nervous. They were extremely paranoid. And when the RB-47, you know, is making this turn and up ahead somewhere, uh, 50 miles is still fairly close. And if you're traveling at 450 knots, well, if you've got a secret Russian base ahead of you, and you're flying at 450 knots or something uh, like that, you're going to be at that space fairly quickly. The Russians make a decision. Um, they, they're going to shoot you down. I'm Tim from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially because of the great research and the quality of the storytelling. Want to be like Tim and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. How do the American negotiations proceed? With, with the Soviets. How long are these guys held for? 208 days. McCone and Bruce, Bruce Olmsted, were kept in captivity. And I, I'm not that strong on what the negotiations were, but I do know that the Russians, um, you know, threatened with, uh, you know, execution. So they have a, a trial. They're tried by uh, the Russian courts. And in the end, uh, the Russians decide not to pursue charges and let him go, which is essentially admitting, okay, yeah, you guys were in international waters and uh, we didn't have a right to shoot you down. Um, you know, the Russians really wanted a confession. What they really wanted him to do was say, yeah, we were in the wrong, blah, 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 blah. But that never happened. McCone and Olmsted kept their mouths shut. Uh, told the truth, and were returned in January, I think it was January 25th of 1961. And it was uh, receiving them back into the country was the first act of newly elected President Kennedy. Uh, so you think about this, I mean, President Kennedy has been the president for a couple days, uh, not, not very long, and his first act is uh, receiving um, Lakota and Olmsted back on American soil. And does he try and take credit for that or or not? Well, of course, he's a politician. 
and he's going to want to take credit. But I, there was I, there was it wasn't highly promoted. Although uh, um, McCone and Olmsted were put on Time Magazine, I mean, they're you know big cover. Uh, you know, then the story or the version of the story came out, and they were received by the president, uh, the spouses. Um, they were received. They got to meet Kennedy in the Oval Office, etc. Now, in the photo you sent me, Kennedy looks rather bored by the meeting. Jackie looks a little bit more uh, animated. It's, a, it's an interesting study. Yeah, I can't speak for um, uh, for President Kennedy at the time, but you, again, you can't separate the the, the zeitgeist of the times uh, from this whole event. I mean, 1960 has been a really tense year from Gary Powers and then to having your NSA people defect with some semblance of American nuclear uh, nuclear strategy. And then, of course, what happens, you know, a few months later, the Cuban Missile, missile Crisis. This is an exciting time to be alive. Well, even nearer, you've got the Bay of Pigs in April, oh, yeah. I think it is, of 61. It's it's nervy times, and I think Kennedy has that meeting with Khrushchev in Vienna that year yeah. right. as well, which doesn't go well. The Vienna summit was in June, and as if you know th- those incidents weren't enough, uh, you've also got the Berlin crisis in 61 as well which is that direct confrontation tank to tank at checkpoint charlie so not a quiet year i think it's safe to say the the shoot down of bruce olmstead's rb47 is a it's it's more than just a footnote in history i think it's it's part and parcel of the cold war which is you know your po- podcast it's a, a fascinating moment and it's it's something that should be understood. I think again today, people we think that the world is has gone completely crazy and we're on this precipice. I, I think uh, the great thing about studying history is that you start realizing that we've been on the precipice a number of times, but we continue to do so. Were there many other shootdowns of U.S. aircraft by the Soviets during the Cold War? When I interviewed Bruce Olmsted, it was probably the first Cold War scenario that I, I was uh, got to interact with a veteran. Again, I talked to the veterans and I talked to them about more than just you know the moment in history. I want to find out the character, what kind of people they were, more of a, a leadership insight. But in learning about Bruce Olmsted, what I had to do was you know, look at the bigger picture and I think... Uh, I think I came to 50 airplanes shot down in the Cold War by the Russians. And this, of course, would be from you know Japan wrapping around by Turkey and moving up to the Barents Sea. And Gary Powers was shot down near Swerdlovsk. So there's this is a shooting war that's, that's very quietly kept. What happened to um, Bruce and, and John McCone? in their, their later careers. Did they remain in the Air Force? Or? Uh, they did, and they both had great careers. Uh, I've, I've met um, 
met uh, people that served with John McCone at Offutt Air Force Base. I think he was he was base commander at Offutt, and uh, Bruce Olmstead um, stayed in uh, the Air Force and had a, a number of appointments. And he retired, I think, in 1983 as a full colonel, and afterwards was content to sail. Yeah, good retirement. Bruce did. Bruce really was tired of talking about the, the you know, Lubyanka prison uh, being shot down. And, but what he did want to talk about was the politics. He did want to talk about the citizenship of, of what it means to be uh, in, in a country or in a world that's not, um, not always safe. And that was important to Bruce. So when, when he and I would have conversations, he would talk about the importance of, of secrecy and the importance of a nation's uh, ability and practice of intelligence. Uh, you know, he, he, he didn't, didn't regret one bit about the, the mission that he was a part of because he knew that intelligence is vital. And he had a great respect for the idea of secrecy and duty. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.